Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. In our series, we've been taking a look at uh, this idea of all things working together. That's the theme of our church for the year. All things work together and all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, how could we know that all things work together for good? I don't know if you look at the news, but you look at the news and you wonder what in the world is going on. For us as believers, we can know that all things can work together for us though. Why? When we take a look at verse number 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So how could some uh, things that we would look at in our lives and say, wow, I really wish that I could just get rid of this thing. I really don't want this in my life. How could that possibly be a good thing in my life? Well, if it makes me to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a good thing. Amen? Right? If it makes me to be more like the Lord, if you're going through a tough time and it's testing your patience and it teaches you, wow, I need to be more long-suffering, I need to be more patient, like the Lord was patient, that can be a good thing. If, if it teaches you, wow, you know what, my strength is weak, I need to trust in the Lord, I need to go to God in faith, if going through that trial or tribulation teaches you, I need to trust God, that's a good thing. And so we know all of these things, and we've taken a look at maybe what it would look like if we go through some things and we become more like the Lord, what would that look like? So that's why we're taking a look at the gospel, seeing what Jesus was like when he was here on earth. And we've taken a look at a couple of different aspects. We saw how Jesus was passionate. He was passionate about the house of God. And if we're going to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to need to be passionate as well. All right? There's no place for passivity in Christian living. We've got to be passionate. We've got to be excited. We've got to be moving forward. We also see how Jesus saw things differently from humans see things. We saw how Jesus saw things through a spiritual lens, through a heavenly lens, through an eternal lens. See, we tend to see things just on the physical level. We see things, I see you, you see me, we see things around us, and we understand that we live by sight, but we are supposed to live by faith. In our series, we also saw how Jesus was a soul winner, amen? Jesus was a soul winner. He went out to seek and to save that which was lost. Today, we are going to take a look and see how Jesus, the Son of God, was a man of prayer, and we as God's children should also be praying people. So Jesus was a praying man, and he left for us a pattern. There's a number of different verses that we could take a look at. We're going to start here in Luke chapter number 6, but get ready. we got a lot of verses that we're going to take a look at. Some examples, some uh, teachings of Jesus Christ looking for this pattern of prayer. Because if we want the power of prayer, we've got to follow that pattern and I want to ask you this question, are we following the pattern of prayer that Jesus Christ left for us? So I want to take a look at three patterns of Jesus' prayer and his prayer life that we should also follow. The first pattern that we see is that Jesus prayed privately. Jesus prayed privately. In verse number 12, it says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. 
So we see the place where Jesus prayed. He didn't pray in the temple area. He wasn't praying in the public square. He wasn't praying where everybody was all around. He went out into a mountain, which means he prayed in a secluded place. He, he prayed where others were not. He prayed in private, away from everybody else, away where nobody else could see him. He prayed in private. And why should we pray privately? Well, I think if you take a look at the context of the passage, we see that, well, we should pray privately in order to disconnect from the chaos that we see all around us. If you back up a little bit and you go back to verse number six, we're in Luke chapter six, where in verse number six, we see the situation arising around Jesus and the Pharisees. In verse number six, it says, and it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an, an, an accusation against him. So we see this scenario being played out where you have Jesus coming into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. You see the Pharisees are also there, and there's a man whose hand is withered. These Pharisees know that Jesus could do miracles. They knew that Jesus could heal the man, and they're watching him to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath day? Why? So that they might accuse him. You see the attitude of the Pharisees, the accusation that they want to bring against the Pharisees. Well, in verse number 8, it says, but... He knew their thoughts. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He walked into a scenario, but he knew exactly the kind of trap that they were thinking that they could lay upon Jesus. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. So here's this man. He's got a physical ailment. His hand is withered. He can't use the hand. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he looked at the man and he said, stand up. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, who's the them? Well, I'm sure everybody there was just thinking, oh, Jesus is just asking a question out to everybody. But Jesus is asking to the Pharisees. <laughs> He's asking the Pharisees, I ask you, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? All right. I, am I allowed to do good on the Sabbath day to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness. Here is a good thing being done. Here is a man with a problem. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. And instead of rejoicing, what did they see? They saw an opportunity to accuse Jesus Christ. They were filled with with madness. They weren't happy that this man was healed. No, they were angry. They were mad. They were upset. Isn't it interesting how the opposition to Jesus Christ can make people mad about good things? You ever wonder why out in this world it looks like, hey, we're here as a church together. We're trying to do good things. Amen? We're trying to do good things. We're trying to lead people to the Lord. We're trying to help people in their relationships and in their marriage. We're trying to help people with their relationships with parents and children. We're trying to help people with integrity, to live with honesty at the workplace. We're trying to help people in all of these areas. And yet, the world's attitude towards the church, towards us, is getting more and more and more. We, we don't like what you're doing there. Aren't we just doing good things? 
Well, Jesus here did a wonderful thing, and they were mad and upset about it. And we see the planning of the Pharisees. They communed with one with another what they might do to Jesus. Now, we know eventually what happens, right? Jesus gets crucified. But you can see the Pharisees are beginning to think about, all right, how do we get rid of this Jesus guy? How do we get him to fall? How do we remove him from this influential situation? You could understand the pressure that is now being placed upon Jesus Christ. You can understand how now there's a very strong opposition to Jesus Christ, and they're filled with madness. The very next verse says, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. One of the reasons why we pray in private is so that we can disconnect from the chaos. So we can disconnect from all of the, all of the things that might distract us. We, we got to put those things aside. You ever try to have a conversation in a large crowd? Maybe you go to a restaurant, there's tons of people and you're packed in there. I remember when I was in, uh, I was traveling in, in, in Europe, you know, you would go to these restaurants, but like, it's kind of a strange thing because you would, you, I'm used to like, you sit at your table and the person next to you, they sit at their table, but all of the tables are right next to each other. So I'm sitting here at my table and there's this perfectly, a perfect stranger sitting right next to me at the table next to us, but our tables are right together. You're packed in there. And sometimes when you're packed in there, it's loud. And sometimes you're in a restaurant, sometimes you're just in a big crowd. You can't really have a conversation. Sometimes it gets to the point where you're like, hey, you know what? Let's step out. Let's go outside. Let's, let's get away. I can't hear what you're saying. Let's get out. And when we pray in private, in large part, that's what we're doing. In large part, what we're doing is, I need to get out of the chaos. I need to get out of all of the noise that's going on around in my life. I need to get out so that I can just have a single focus in my prayer. I want to talk to God. I want to make my prayer request known to God. Mark chapter 1, verse number 35 says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. You ever feel that way when you wake up in the morning and it feels like everybody wants something from you? Right? You're married, your spouse wants you to do something, get something ready in the morning. You have kids, your kids are expecting you to get them food and get them dressed and you got to get them ready for school. And, and then your workplace is already emailing you and texting you and sending you, hey, we got to get this done, what about this? And, and you have all of these things, all of this pressure and you're thinking about, well, you know, next week we're going to family vacation or I got this thing that I'm doing with my family on the weekend. You got all of these things going on. That's what Jesus is going through. His, his disciples came to him and said, everybody's looking for you. <laughs> everybody wants you to do something for them. And sometimes it can feel like that in life. It can feel like everybody around you is looking for you to do something for them. Help me with this. Do this for me. Can we do this? And, and it just seems like it's constantly, hey, can you do this for me? I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to do this. So why do we pray? We pray in private in order to get away from all of that and just think about, okay, what do I really need? I know what this person wants. I know what that person wants. I know what this group wants. But what does God want? Now, I got to get away from all of the noise and just think about, okay, God, I'm here with you. 
and I want to get away from the noise. I want to get away from the pressure. I got some family pressures. I got some financial pressures. I got some pressures from my friends and other people. They want me to do this and they want me to do that. Sometimes it can feel like all the world is looking for you. So we need to pray separately because in verse number 38 it says, and he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. See, Jesus knew, oh, everybody's looking for me to do this and to do that and, and, and I hear, uh, heal them and, and hear parables, do all of these things, but I am sent to go to the next towns over, so I'm going to go. And so sometimes we need some clarification and getting away, praying in private helps us to, to, to settle all of the pressures and the noise that's in the world around us. Just, just think about, okay, what is it that I need to do right now? What do I need to do today? That's why you need to have a private prayer time every day away from everybody else where it's just you and God. You can silence the noise. We also pray in private in order to devote ourselves to Christ. In Matthew chapter 6, verse number 5, it says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily, or truly, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. See, when we pray in private, it clarifies our motive. See, when you pray in private, there's no way for you to try to think about how can I impress these other people to make them think that I'm so spiritual because there's nobody around. There's nobody to impress. There, there's nobody that you're trying to show off to. When you pray in private, it's just you. And often, and in reality, who we are in private is really who we really are. Because when we're in public, we can be peer pressured into doing things. We can think about, well, I know this person expects me to do that, so that's why I'm going to do it this way. And I, 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 I'm not going to say this because I know that this person might react a certain way if I say this or if I say it a certain way. We think about all of these different things, but when we're alone by ourselves, we don't have to think about anybody else. We don't have to think about what that person wants, what this person thinks if I did this. When we're by ourselves, that's really in many ways who we really are. And that's why we need to pray in private. We pray in private because there's only one thing that we should seek in prayer, which is we want God to answer our prayer request. And when we pray in private, there's no other reason why you would pray other than, God, I need you to answer my prayer request. I need you to do something. I don't care whether these people think I'm spiritual or not. I don't care how these people would react to this prayer request that I have. I don't have to care about what anybody else is thinking or doing about, you know, my prayer request because nobody else is around. It's just me and God. And God, I need you to do something. I need you to do something. And when we have a need that has to be answered and we need God to answer that prayer request, we will go in private. If we have that friend or coworker or somebody that we know that is lost and needs to be saved, we'll go to God in private because we know, God, I need 
this person, this person needs to be saved. I really want to see this person be saved. I can't save them, but I really want them to be saved. If that's something that's important that we need, we'll go to God in private. If you've got a great financial need in your life and you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm calculating all of the financial, you know, incomes and outgoes and the net and all of the places we could slash the budget and try to make a few extra dollars. It's just not going to make it. God, I need you to come. I need you to come through for me. We'll go to God in prayer when we need to think about, oh, I have a relationship issue that needs to be restored. This marriage relationship, we're kind of in trouble right now. We need some help. Maybe you've got a parent-child relationship that's not going so well. And you need that answer to prayer. Yeah, you know what? If you go to God in private, there's no other reason why you would pray about that thing other than God. I know that you can do something and I want you to do something about it. And we pray in private because we want God to do something about it. That's why we pray. See, when we pray in public, we pray in public because sometimes it's expected for us to pray in public, right? I pray here in the church services because I'm expected to pray. I might ask uh, some of the men here, some of the leaders here in the church, some spiritual men to come up here and pray. When I ask, hey, will you come and pray? I've never had anybody say, no, I'm not praying. <laughs> they always say yes, you know? Of course, because it's expected. Oh, let's pray. Yeah, I need to pray. We should all pray. And I'd be glad to lead the prayer here in the church service together. That's great. That's wonderful. And there's a place for public prayer. But when you really need something from God, you'll take it to God in private and say, God, it's just you and me. There's nobody else around. There's no other motives. I just need you to do something. That's why we pray in private. Thirdly, we also pray privately in order to deal with sin. Jesus, of course, had no sin. He was God. In all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus didn't have sin, but we do. Amen? We have sin. We are all sinners. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And we must deal with that sin. Now, if you're saved here today, you've been cleansed from your sin. Amen? You never have to deal with the punishment of sin forever. And praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. But you can still sin after you get saved, and that's going to ruin that relationship between you and God. You're going to get farther from God, because that's what sin is. Sin is going your own way. You're going to be separated from God. You won't have that close relationship. He will not be able to hear you, and, and you won't be able to hear him. There's, you you got to deal with sin in your daily Christian living as a saved person. Luke chapter 18, verse number 9, gives us this interesting contrast. It says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You can see the attitude of the Pharisee in his prayer. But then you see the publican, and the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So we see this contrast between these two men. You have one, a Pharisee, who is religiously lifted up 
and respected in the community, and you have a publican who is known to be a sinner and associates with sinners. So you have these two groups of people that are kind of encapsulated here. They are both here in the temple area. Both of them are praying, but you notice one of them is proud to pray in public, and the other is ashamed. Why would that be the case? Well, the, the, the Pharisee, he's just looking to show off. He's looking to show, look how good I am. Look how great I am. He's praying out loud. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. I'm glad I'm not like these people over there. I'm glad, you see that publican over there? I'm glad I'm not that guy. That's what he's praying, and he's praying it proudly in public. But you see the publican, he prays off in the corner. He's ashamed. To pray, he would never pray this kind of prayer out loud, publicly, God, be merciful. You know, he's, he's a sinner. And he's ashamed of that sin. And he knows that sin has to be dealt with. We, too, have sin. And when we have sin, we deal with it privately. Amen? When, we pray, when you have somebody up here praying, I'm not expecting anybody here confessing their sins up here, Okay? If I ask you to pray, please don't come up here and confess your sins up here at the close of the service. That'll make it really awkward. <laughs> I don't know what we would do. I might have another prayer request that somebody else come up here and say, all right, let's have another prayer here to close off the service, right? You don't confess your sins to me or to anybody else. You confess your sins to God and you deal with your sins with God. That's why you pray privately. Now, there are times when you need to deal with your sin publicly in terms of you might have a relationship issue, so you need to approach that other person and make sure that that relationship is made right. You, you might have to apologize to the other person. You might have to apologize to a group of people. You know what? I did this thing, and, you know, there's situations for that. But we understand when it comes to sin and getting forgiveness of sin and having our sin to be dealt with, it must be dealt with by God. Because who can forgive sins but God? And so we need to deal with our sins. We deal with our sins privately. So that's why we pray privately. Jesus, he prayed privately. So that's the first pattern that we see. He prayed privately. Have a regular time of private prayer. Have a regular time of private prayer. Let me also encourage you, have a regular time of private Bible reading. Those two things naturally go together, all right? If you naturally already read your Bible, pray at that time. If you're already having a time of prayer, then read your Bible at that time. The point is, have a regular time of private conversation with God. Because it's nice to have a public conversation with God. See, we're taking a look at God's Word together. But you need to have a private conversation with God as well. If you're married, right, you go out together, you know, you might go to a friend's house, you might have dinner together, you might come to church together, you have conversations together, so you, you know, me and my wife, and we might have a conversation with some people, some other families, some individuals here at the church, and we're talking together, I'm talking with her, she's talking with me, we're talking, can you imagine how strange it would be if we went into the car and never said a word again until we came out in public again? <laughs> Right? We sat in the car, never said a word to each other. We went into our house, never said a word to each other. We ate dinner and never said a word to each other. We slept in the same bed and never said a word to each other. We woke up and never said a word to each other. And then when we came out together in public, hey, how's it going? <laughs> like, you'd be like, oh, that's a little strange. Right? It's the same with our relationship with God. Right? We have a personal relationship with God. And as you go throughout the day, have a conversation with him. Sometimes you just pray a prayer request. God, I, I'm thinking about my friend who's lost. God, you need to save him. God, will you save him? Just as you're walking down the street. 
And uh, you can have those kind of things. And, and you might have a, a thought in your mind. Oh, God, that was a wrong thought. That was a sinful thought. God, will you forgive me of that sin? You can have conversations with God, praying privately in your mind. But we also see that Jesus prayed persistently. In verse number 12, it says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So Jesus prayed all night. That is a long time. You ever have an all-night prayer meeting and pray through the night? Okay. You ever have a prayer meeting all through the night and stay awake all through the night, okay? I'll admit, I've been through all night prayer meetings and there have been moments where I just kind of came to and I was like, oh yeah, we're having a prayer meeting. I think I just fell asleep, you know? And so there are those moments. But Jesus spent by himself in a mountain praying all night. He prayed all night. He prayed persistently. Now, there are times to pray all night. There are times when you need to get some sleep. Okay, there's, there's some times to get some sleep. I'm not telling you every night you should pray all night long, eight hours a night, every single night. You need to sleep. But there are times to pray persistently. That, you know what, I'm going to rob sleep in order to pray for this thing. I'm going to pray persistently over a long period of time. The Bible says that we should pray without ceasing. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. So I want to answer this question of why... Do we or why should we pray persistently? We know why we, sh we should pray privately, but why should we pray persistently? Well, first of all, because of our inability to do something about it. All right, Our inability to do something about the thing that we're praying about. Luke chapter 18 says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint saying, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man, and there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, avenge me of mine adversary. So here's this main character in this parable, a widow woman in a city who had an offense done to her. Something was wrong, wrongly done to her. She's a widow woman, which in that day culturally would mean that she had no societal advantage. She had no financial advantage. She had all sorts. She was kind of societally speaking at the low end where nobody would really go to her and just kind of try to help her out. She had no recourse in this area. She had no ability. She had no finances. She had no political power. She had nothing. She had no way of righting this wrong. So what did she do? She went to the one who could do something about it, which is the judge. And when this widow woman is going to the judge, what she's saying is, judge, here is this thing that was wrong. I can't do anything about it. Will you do something about it? Will you fix this problem? Will you take care of this wrong that was done against me? And what the widow woman is saying is, I can't do it, but you can. That's why I'm asking you. We ask persistently because we acknowledge we can't do something about it. We can't do something about it. You ever try to do something and it's clear you're having trouble trying to do it? And then you have somebody close by say, you need a hand? What does almost everybody say? I got it. <laughs> you try to open a jar, I got it, right? I got it, I got it! No, you look like you're struggling there. No, I got it, you know? And, you know, sometimes all sorts of different things. I got it. Sometimes we live life with the attitude of, I got it. I got it. I don't need help. I can figure it out. 
but we'll go to God in prayer when we acknowledge, I don't got it. I don't got it. You know, I've been trying in this marriage relationship, and I, I know there's something missing, and I've been trying everything. I don't got it. God, you need to help me here. God, I'm trying to raise these kids for you and, and trying to see that they'll be saved at a young age and try to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I see all of these mistakes that I'm making and all of these things. I know what I should do. And I, in the moment, I, I just can't bring myself to do the right thing. God, I don't got it. Maybe you're involved in a ministry and you know that God's moving you maybe to teach a class or be involved in some way in the church and, and, and you know you want to do it, but at the same time you feel like, you know what, I, I don't think that I can do that. When you acknowledge God, I don't got it. You'll say, God, can you help me in this ministry? Because I don't think I can do it. I don't think I'm capable. I don't think I'm able to do this thing. Maybe you have a lost friend, a lost family member who's, who needs to be saved and you're trying to witness to them and every time you try to witness to them, it seems like they're just not paying attention. You, you're going to go to God and say, God, uh, you know, you have to work here. You're going to have to do something in this person's heart. You're going to have to change this person. You're going to ha have to be the one that convicts their heart. And we will pray persistently when we acknowledge, I can't do anything about it. I can't change this person. I can't change this situation. I can't change uh, something about myself. When we go to God, understanding there's no plan B. There's no alternative. If I go to God and ask for help, there's no other person I can go and ask for help. When we acknowledge and understand there's no plan B, we'll persistently pray to God because God's the only one that can do it. When we acknowledge, God, you're the only one that can save this person, we'll pray persistently to God to save that person. Amen? Because it's not like, well, I'll ask you and I'll ask you. You know, maybe you're trying to get a loan, you know, from a bank. You might ask this bank. You might ask that bank. You might go over here. You might go over there. And you'll go with the one that maybe gives you the most money or the best rate or whatever. You know, you have different options. But when it comes to prayer requests, there's only one option, and it's God. And if God's the only option, you've got to persistently ask until you get that answer to prayer. We pray persistently, not just because of our inability, but also because of the importance of what we are praying for. Verse number four, Luke 18, verse number four, and he would not for a while. So here's this widow woman. She has something wrong done against her. She goes to the judge and says, judge, will you do something about it? And the judge says, no, he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. You know what is going on? The widow woman went to the judge and said, judge, you got to do something. And the judge said, no, I'm not going to do, I don't care. And the widow woman said, okay. And the next day she came back and said, judge, will you do something about this? And the judge says, I told you yesterday, no. I don't care. And she goes away. The next day she comes back, judge, you got to do something about my situation. And the judge is like, I, what are you talking about? I told you already. Day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day. You can imagine the judge is like, all right, when's the widow woman going to show up? All right, I got to tell her no again. All right, where is she? All right, until finally he's like, all right, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of you asking this. All right, whatever you want, I'll do it just so you'll stop bothering me. Okay, what that shows me is that this widow woman thought 
whatever it was that she was dealing with was important enough to go to the judge day after day after day after day after day. She would not accept no until she got that answer. And the question for us regarding prayer is, what is that thing that's important enough to us that we will not take no for an answer? That we'll go and say, God, you got to save this person, and I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm going to pray every single day until I see this person say yes. Now, of course, I can't make them to be saved, and God simply offers that to them, but God, I want to see them to be saved. What about that relationship issue? Maybe you have a marital issue. Maybe you have a family issue with a parent and a child. Is that important enough for you to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to pray for this relationship every single day because I'm not going to take no. I'm not going to accept that this is just the way marriage is going to be. I'm not going to accept that this is just the way that parent and child relationship is going to be. I'm not going to accept that this is just the way that relatives or brothers and sisters, that this is just the relationship that it's going to be. That is not acceptable to me this is important i'm going to keep praying until i get a yes that's why we pray persistently that's why we keep going to god in prayer and, and we've got to find those things in our lives that we say this is so important i will not accept no i'm going to keep praying until i hear yes what's that thing in your life that you say you know what i'm not going to stop until i get yes i'm not going to stop until i get yes that's how we know what's important and it's the important things in our life that we'll go, God, I'm not stopping until I get a yes. I'm not stopping until I get an answer. And God wants us to continue to go to him in prayer, asking him to answer our prayer requests because it's important to us. Because it's important to us, we go to God in prayer persistently. Thirdly, we see that we need to pray persistently because of God's intention regarding his children. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 8 says, For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. If God knows we need it, why doesn't God just do it? You ever wonder that? Doesn't God know everything? He does. He knows what we need. He knows what you need before you know that you need it. Right? He knows everything. He knows exactly where you would be today facing the exact situation and problem that you're facing today. He knew that from the beginning of time. He knew exactly what problem you would face today. If God knew exactly what problem you would face today, why didn't God fix it before it got there? Couldn't he have fixed it? He's God. Couldn't he have fixed it? Well, Jesus actually explains the purpose of this parable. Verse number six, and the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? You know why God challenges us to pray persistently? Because he wants to know whether we trust him or not. See, a persistent prayer is an indication of faith. It's an indication of, I know it hasn't happened yet, but I know God's going to come through. I know God's going to do it. 
I know that there's nobody else that can do it. I'm not going to trust anybody else. Because that's, that's human nature. If we go to somebody and we ask 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 and the answer is no, 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 what do we do? We ask somebody else, right? Maybe you have a, a spouse. I, mean, I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask. The answer is just no, later, another day, this, that, and whatever. And then a neighbor comes by, hey, can you help me with this? <laughs> well, you know, my family member's not doing it. I asked my kid to do it. I asked my parent to do it. I asked somebody else to do it. I asked the spouse. They're not doing it. Okay, can you help me with this, right? That's just human nature that eventually after so many no's, we're going to say, all right, he's not going to do it. I'm going to ask somebody else. But what God wants us to do is he wants to see, do we really trust him? Even after you've been praying for a year and you've been getting an answer of no, do you still trust him? If you've been praying to God for this answer of a prayer request for five years and the answer is still no, nothing's changed, no difference, no answer to that prayer request, do you still trust God? Or are you going to say, oh, God's never going to answer it. I'm going to stop praying. All right, I asked God, I tried, I prayed, but now I'm going to try to find something else, somebody else, some, some other way. I give up on this prayer thing. We pray persistently because God has a purpose in having us to continually pray and pray and pray, even though the answer doesn't come. Why? Because he wants us to trust him. That's why we pray persistently. So we see that Jesus, he prayed privately. We see that Jesus, he prayed persistently. Thirdly, we see that Jesus prayed purposefully. He prayed purposefully. So far, we've seen where Jesus prayed. He prayed privately. We see how long Jesus prayed. He prayed all night. He prayed a long time. He prayed persistently. But what did God actually pray for? We know where he prayed. We know how long he prayed about it. But what did he pray about? Well, I want to see a few areas where Jesus prayed. First of all, we see that we should pray over big decisions. We should pray over big decisions. Luke chapter 6, verse number 13 says, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. So remember, Jesus went apart to pray. He prayed all night. In the morning, he, woke, uh, he didn't wake up. He was already awake. In the morning, he went to his disciples, and of them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. And we go through this list. We have Simon, Andrew, James, John, you have the list there, okay? So you have the list of all of these 12 disciples that are named the apostles here. Jesus is about to make a big decision because even though when you say how many disciples did Jesus have, we would all say 12, right? Jesus had 12 disciples. But Jesus actually had more disciples than that. He had a lot of disciples, many followers that followed him, and not everybody was part of the 12. There were many, there was a, a, an instance where he sent out 70, and there were other disciples that were there, and there were times when the disciples would leave and they would go back and they stopped becoming disciples. Out of all of these individuals, out of all of these disciples, Jesus is going to pick 12 of them. Now, we don't know everything about uh, these disciples. In fact, a lot of them, we don't know that much about them. But we do know this, that four of them were fishermen, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, okay? Not exactly the most highly educated, not exactly the most respected in society, not exactly the most popular people around. They were from Galilee, not exactly the most popular region of the country. One was a tax collector, Levi, also known as Matthew. He was a tax collector, right? Not exactly your favorite, you know, person in your life, right? 
you know? Who loves the IRS, right? Oh, I love the IRS. Nobody loves the IRS, right? Nobody loves it when April 15th comes around, right? Oh, I got to pay taxes, or you see your paycheck every single month or every other week, you know, and, you know, you're supposed to get, you know, $500, you're supposed to get $1,000, but instead of $1,000, you get like $650, and you're like, what? <laughs> Where's all my money? The government took it. Oh, the IRS, the tax collector, Levi, <laughs> you know, that's what the people are thinking, you know, they're thinking about these tax collectors. Not only were these tax collectors taking their money, Sometimes they would cheat and lie and steal their money on top of that. Not exactly the kind of person that you would be like, hey, I want you all people to listen to me. You? You're a tax collector. I'm not listening to anything that you say. We know the last person, of course, that we know a little bit about is Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. We know that. We know that Jesus knew that Judas was going to do that when he selected him. It's a big decision. Is Jesus really going to pick fishermen to be his apostles? See, apostle simply means to be sent, like a, a representative. Is Jesus really going to pick fishermen to be his representative? Is Jesus really going to pick a tax collector to be his representative? Is Jesus really going to pick somebody that he knows is going to betray him to be his representative? It's a big decision here. It's a big decision, and Jesus prayed over it. When you're facing big decisions, you should pray for them privately and persistently. You know, we got some teenagers here. You know, you got some big decisions ahead of you. You got some big decisions about what college that you're gonna go to, or what high school you're gonna go to, or what classes you're gonna take. You're gonna make some big decisions about the friends that you're gonna make in high school. Those are big decisions. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm gonna say that again, all right? If you are gonna choose your friends, choose what college you go to, those are big decisions, okay? Those are big decisions. Teenagers, are you praying for those? Are you praying about your friends? Are you praying about what college you go to? Are you praying over those things? Hey, if you're in college or you're going to college, you gotta think about what major you're gonna take or what major you're gonna have. You pray to God about that? Did you pray about what job you're going to take? Those are big decisions. Hey, if you're going to go to a college that's far away from here, you've got to think about where are you going to go to church? It's a big decision, amen? You know what? If you're going to go to college and you're not going to stick around here and go to this church, you ought, you ought to ask somebody, is there a good church where I'm going to college? And if the answer is, I can't find one, Maybe you should rethink whether that's a good decision or not. That's a big decision. You're going to go to a place for four years, and for four years, you're going to live in a place where you're not even sure that there's a good church at one of the most influential times in your life when you will be separated from parental authority and surrounded by worldly influences. Is that really the best decision? You've got to think about that. You should pray about that. You should pray to God and say, God, I really want to go here. But should I really actually go here? I don't really know. You should pray about who you're going to date. Kind of seems like a big decision, right? Right? If you're going to marry, shouldn't you marry somebody who's saved? Amen? Shouldn't you marry somebody who's not just saved, but somebody who's serving in the church? Somebody who's involved? 
Shouldn't, shouldn't you marry somebody who's got some spiritual integrity? Somebody who says, you know what? I don't care what other people are doing. This is what God says. This is what I'm going to do. Shouldn't you think about, hey, I, I want to marry somebody like that. Amen? Shouldn't you pray about that? We should. That's an important decision. That's a big decision. After salvation, isn't marriage the second big, biggest decision of your life? Right? You get a job. You don't like the job. You could get another job. Right? You move to a house, you don't like the house, you can sell your house and move to another house. You can make all sorts of changes. But when you marry, you say, till death do us part. Amen? This is a big decision. All sorts of things are big decisions. And that's what we should be praying about. Big decisions. Decisions that have big consequences in your life. You should pray about what ministry to be involved in. You should pray about big decisions in terms of big purchases in your life. You should think about, okay, if I buy this car or if I buy this house or I take out this huge student loan, how will it affect me? You should not automatically assume that just because everybody else does it that you should do it too. Okay, let me give you an example. I went to college. I went to, uh, when, I, when I went to high school, I applied to a bunch of colleges. I got into two. I got into two pretty good colleges, and uh, through the sequence of events, I went to the college that was right close to my house. Uh, uh, I went to the University of Washington. We lived across the lake on the other side in the suburbs, and uh, so I would take the bus back and forth every single day to school, right? Every morning, it would take me about an hour. I'd drive to the park and, uh, 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 park and ride, I think they called it, and then I would wait for the bus, get on the bus sit through traffic, get to the school, walk up the hill, you know. Every day I would do that, go back and forth every single day. Uh, so I went to school, and uh, praise the Lord, you know, my parents had planned for this. They were able to pay for a lot of those things. I didn't dorm a single time when I was all in college. I lived at home. I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When I went to college, I was involved in the music ministry. I went soul winning on Saturdays. I did all of that stuff when I was in college. I did, I did that whole thing. And praise the Lord, my parents were able to pay for that college. When I got to graduate school, I got a TA position there for the four quarters that I was there. Uh, well, three of them. The last one, I was doing research. And so I was able to graduate without any student debt. And praise the Lord for that. Okay? I know that that's difficult for a lot of people, but for me, I was able to do that. And for me, it was very pivotal that it happened that way because I graduated in June of 2008. God called me to ministry in July of 2008. Okay. That may not mean anything to you, but how would you feel if God called you to ministry and you had $50,000 in student debt? What are you going to do? You might think, oh, it's obvious. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to get a great job. I'm going to do all of these things. That might sound really nice to you at the moment, but you don't know what God's going to do down the road. I didn't know God was going to call me to ministry. I didn't know that that's when God would call me to ministry. God couldn't have called me a little bit earlier. Could have saved a little time, <laughs> saved a little money, <laughs> right? All of these things, right? I, I didn't know any of these things, but God called me at that time. I didn't really know the significance of that decision until later in life. And it's so true of a lot of the big decisions that we really don't know how big a decision it is until after we've made it and we look back. And we realize, oh, I didn't really think it was a big decision, but now I see, wow, that was a really big decision. That, that had big consequences on my life that I, I didn't even think about, wasn't even aware of at the time. But now I look back and realize, whoa, that was a big decision. These kinds of decisions you need to pray about because we don't know the consequences that may come 
if we, if we say yes or if we say no. So we should pray over big decisions. We should pray for more laborers. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So Jesus is busy in ministry, and as he looks up, he sees this huge crowd of people. And it says in verse number 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the, the, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. You ever look around and, and think, boy, it'd be nice to have some more people. Boy, it'd be nice to have another Life Connection class to be able to have you know, people specifically in their life area. Wouldn't that be great? We could have another group of people has a, you know, just a right teaching that's just perfect for the life stage that they're in. And then, oh, we'd love to start another ministry. Oh, I wish that we had more nursery workers. I wish we had more kids teachers. I wish we had more youth helpers, <laughs> you know, to go to youth conference, go to youth camp, help out in activities, do all sorts of things. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if we had all sorts of people getting involved in all sorts of different ministries? Wouldn't it be nice if we had more people involved in the music ministry? Okay, as the person in charge of the music ministry, all right, it would be great if we had more people involved in the music ministry, all right? You know, all of these things. Wouldn't it be great if we had more people going out soul winning? Wouldn't it, be more uh, wouldn't it be great if we had more people involved in all of these different sorts of things? You know what we could do about it? Pray that God will send us some. Pray that God will send us some. And maybe you're looking around and thinking, boy, I, you know, I like my church, but I wish my church had this. And it's not there. Pray about it. You know what God just might do? He might send laborers. You know what God just might do? He might send you as the laborer. Oh, there is a need. Why don't you do it? <laughs> right? Hey, there's an opportunity. You see the opportunity. You're praying to me about it. Hey, this is a perfect match. Why don't you be involved in the ministry? You never know what God might do. But thirdly and lastly, I see that we need to pray, first of all, for big decisions, pray for more laborers. We also need to pray for spiritual victory. In Matthew chapter number 26, Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has already done the Passover. He's already done the Lord's Supper. He's already done all of that. He goes out and he prays. He prays out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has his 11 disciples with him. Remember, Judas is gone already at the time. He's about to arrest him in just a few moments. 11 disciples are there. Three of them he takes forward with him, right? Peter, James, and John. They are forward with him, and he tells them to watch and pray. He goes and prays. He comes back. He says, watch and pray. He goes and comes back. He says, watch and pray. You know, he keeps going back and forth. But in verse number 41, it says, watch and pray. Why? That ye enter not into temptation. We need to pray for spiritual victory. Pray for spiritual victory in your personal life. Pray for spiritual victory in your family. Pray for spiritual victory in your ministry, in your life connection class. Just think in your mind, who are the people that sit around the table when I'm in class? Pray for them. 
Pray that they will have spiritual victory. Pray that they will abstain from sin. Pray that they will follow God. Pray that they will be involved. Pray that they will be a witness. Pray that they would love as God loved. Pray that they would be forgiving. Pray for them that they would have spiritual victory. Pray for your pastor that he would have spiritual victory. Pray for your pastor's wife that she will have spiritual victory. Pray for the kids. Pray for the teachers. Pray that they will have victory. Victory over sin so that we might have the victory. So Jesus, he was a praying man, and it left a pattern. We see that he prayed privately. We see that he prayed persistently. We also see that he prayed purposefully. 